So, Jake, what are you drinking this week? Uh, well, this week, you know, you and I kind of talked about it a little bit off air that we were going to both try to do Chilean Carmeniers, and I've got mm-hmm. I've got a whole bunch of wine, and mm-hmm. I thought I had a Carmenere in there. <laughs> I do have a Chilean, but it's not a Chilean Carmenere. It's a Chile, Chilean Cabernet Sauvignon. Okay. Yeah, so that's what I'm drinking tonight. It's It's quite good. It is very different than like your typical, you know, Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon, and mm-hmm. it's the the part of the structure that is missing that makes it very different in my mind than most Cabernets is tannin. It has inc- okay. incredibly soft tannins, but besides that, it's got uh, very fruit forward. Very, you know, this is something I learned in that class I took um, that fruit forward wines do tend to be typical of New World. And so it is very fruit forward. It's got a lot of kind of blackberry notes, maybe some dark plum. It's got mm-hmm. nice acidity. It also has a lot of spice, which is not not like black pepper spice, but like uh, uh, I, I'm not sure how to describe it. But it's it's got it's got like a spiciness to it. So mm-hmm. um, very good. It, it does have tannins, but they're very very soft and they're kind of understated, which makes which at first made me think it was light bodied. But it's not light. Okay. It's not light bodied. Like once I took another sip and, and thought about it, I was like, no, it is. It is heavy on my tongue. It's just slippery. And then it kind of it, it registered what what it was missing for a cab sob was tannins. And I was like, okay, oh, so okay, it's viscous. Yeah, it's viscous. It, it's heavy on the tongue, but it, in like an oily way almost. Mm-hmm. Um, would you describe it as young? Like not necessarily in age, mm-hmm. but like in character. Yeah, I, yeah, probably. It's um. Because this is something that I'm noticing a lot about, like, especially South American wines, is a lot of times it feels like, I I think this sounds disrespectful and I don't mean it that way, but that the winemakers are, like, young in their craft a lot of the time. Like, something about the wine seems almost unfinished. Like, they're still learning. That's what I seem to get a lot in a lot of South Americans that I... Had. Well, it's, it's that's very possible. I mean, this one is from a small producer out there. I, I don't know a huge amount about it, but it's uh, mm-hmm. it's a Chateau Pearball. I might have actually reviewed this once on the show before because I have a couple of bottles of it. I think you have. Yeah, um, but it's it's Cabernet Sauvignon 2015. Mm-hmm. It's the family selection, so they do others. I got this actually from Last Bottle, which is who I got most of my stuff from. Uh, I'll go ahead and read you the back the the back sure. label. It's it says uh, a deliciously complex wine, uh, wine, rich, rich and polished, exhibiting ripe plum, blackberry and spice, offering flavors of chocolate, which I I don't detect chocolate, but the next one I do, and vanilla. It does have a a hint of vanilla, which is typical of something that's been oaked. Um, a very complete red wine, elegantly styled and finished with ripe, uh, integrated tannins. That I think integrated tannins. I'm not sure what that indicates, but it is. It does have tannins, but it's definitely at the end. And since it listed at the end of the paragraph, I think they knew that. Mm-hmm. Or at least it's kind of like an afterthought. Oh, it does have tannins, um, but the rest of it is very well structured. I don't think it's missing anything that makes the structure off. It's just not. It's not the in-your-face tannins that I am accustomed to with Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignons or the lower-cost Cabernet Sauvignons. There are, mm-hmm. you know, some of the more expensive ones that we've had um, did have much softer tannins, but the tannins were there. Mm-hmm. It was just better structured. So this one, this one 
I think is structured well as far as the other components of what I would expect from a Cabernet Sauvignon, but the tannins part of it is a little odd. And um, now, granted, if, if depending on the price that this was available for, I would buy it again. This at la, on last bottle wines was I think uh, fourteen dollars a bottle. Totally worth that. It, yeah, it definitely sounds like a good fourteen dollar bottle of wine. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a good one. I think I think it retails online for twenty eight dollars a bottle, so it's about fifty percent off, which is good. Yeah, um, half off is good. Yeah, half off is great. Um, now it says here the the aging process of this wine first in French oak barrels and then in the bottle it gives the character of a wonderful red wine. Um, it is imported into Napa, but it is um, grown in Chile in the Central Valley of Chile. Fourteen uh, mm-hmm. percent alcohol by volume, so. Very typical New World ABV on that for a cab sob. Mm-hmm. Very high, <laughs> is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, you and I drink high high ABV wines a lot, but this is not, you're not going to get something that high out of, you know, Bordeaux most you likely. Don't, you don't often. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you sipping on? Okay. So I also have something out of the Central Valley of Chile, which Chile being such a long country who knows how long that actually is mm-hmm. <laughs> so i have a wine i got from kroger so i went into kroger this weekend thinking i hadn't had the el pastor or um, el pensador i keep saying pastor el pensador uh tempranillo in a couple months and i thought you know 8.99 that sounds really good I- i'd like a bottle of that um I knew we were going to be trying to do some ribeyes. I knew we were going to do some deglazing of the wine and mushrooms. And I was like, okay, Tempranillo, the the aggressiveness, m- mushrooms and onions that have been, you know, cooked in a cast iron at a high heat with butter. Like, the aggressiveness of the, the wine, that's going to go really well. Mm-hmm. So, in the total, or not the total wine, but the um, Kroger wine section that I go to, the South American and like off reds like pure pure non-blended reds or spanish like riojas but they're all, and the spanish riojas are all kind of in the same area so i was had the tempranillo in my hand and i look over and i see a, a carmenar and i see two of them and you know this was 10 10 bucks the one i've got um it was normally 12 they had a 2017 that was less i think the the discount was less on the bottle if there was a discount at all. Right. But it was still more expensive than the one I got. So I have the Canos or Bicicleta or whatever bicycle in Spanish is. Uh, Carmenar, uh limited edition 2012 wine of Chile. Um, so this is like most uh, Carmenari that I've had. Um, you know, very generic red wine flavor, but there's something else there. I had my wife try uh, a sip of the glass that I had open at one point, and she was like, there's like something there, like a spiciness, and then, you know, she said our favorite description, uh, black pepper. Mm -hmm. So it definitely has that on there. I've had the current glass open for quite a while now, and I think that's really kind of muted the flavors, but I've also had, like, I had two beers earlier in the day. This is like kind of my second and a half glass of wine. Don't know how, (laughs) you know... uh, intoxicated i am there so the winemakers note there's you know kind of like how they came up with the name like the people travel the vineyard on bicycles to do the um you know do the like clippings and stuff like that so a velvety carmenere with strawberry and raspberry mocha and i think it's 
yeah, raspberry comma mocha and licorice aromas together with structured fruity palate. So definitely fruity, mm-hmm. um, definitely structured. Uh, though if you have it open too long, I think it loses a little bit of the structure just because it, you know, the oxygen adjacent oxidize, whatever oxidizing uh, takes over a little bit. Um, but very very tasty. Um, I get the strawberry, maybe a little bit of the raspberry on the palate. Uh, mocha and licorice, no. But you know, those are those are smells that I might not pick up on normally, just because I don't have a super strong sense of smell. Um, but yeah, so what's interesting on the back of the bottle is it's certified carbon neutral delivery, hmm. and it's got like a little QR code where you can scan it. I scanned the QR code and it didn't work. Oh, interesting. At least not on my phone. But because I was trying to look up a little bit of information, but like when I googled the name. Nothing came up, but like I finally found their website. So I was trying to get us a little bit more information as you were switching over to me. Um, so apparently, you know, they have a actually a pretty decent website. It looks pretty nice. Uh, got socials and like if you can learn about the valleys and in the estate. So I mean, that's pretty nice um, for ten bucks. You know, it, it's not the best bottle of Carmenere that I've ever had, or I've pronounced it four different ways this time. But you know, it it again, it's one of those bottles that. Like, I don't regret it at all. Yeah. And what I think is really neat is, like, it's got, as we, you know, often talk about having, like, specific, um, like, licenses or, I'm, I'm not getting the right word right now, but, like... Hey, certifications certifi- and stuff. Yeah, yeah, certification, carbon neutral delivery. Like, that's really interesting that, like, that's the selling point that they're putting on the bottle. Like, you know, hey, this is a carbon neutral delivery. Yeah. Like, I don't know what that means. Is it carbon neutral from... Chile to Birmingham, Alabama, where the importer is, which I thought was interesting. It's, you know, imported out of Birmingham, but that kind of makes sense, you know, thinking like, okay, they truck it up, you know, they say they truck it up or train, you know, freight train up it from Chile to like the Caribbean and then like put it on a ship to America. Like I could see Alabama being a place that would come yeah. in. That. Or, or maybe like they leave a port in Chile and just kind of go up and through the Panama Canal and into Birmingham or something or, or, or even, yeah. or even, I guess they could, I think, isn't, isn't there a, uh, an Atlantic port in Chile? It's just very, very far, far South. You know, that, that might be the case. I think, um, I think Chile occupies the entire point down there. Yeah. So there certainly might be, um, I think it would be, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know enough about, um, transportation geography down there, but I also don't know if like, you know, just cause it says it's imported out of a place at, you know, doesn't mean it doesn't come in like the LA port or something. Yeah, like that. that's true. So, you know, thinking about it, like you know, if we start a wine importing business, which I think would be fun mm-hmm. in its own way, um, doesn't mean we're going to bring it in through Norfolk or like Houston. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you know, we could be bringing it in via plane because like that's what made sense. You know, I don't know what the logistics are there. Um, so color, uh, it's very dark, but like when viewed from the side. But if you look down through it. Very, uh, you know, the garnet, like we were talking last week, mm-hmm. uh, very ruby on the back end, uh, 13% alcohol by volume. So it's, it doesn't, it's not super aggressive in that way, uh, but very hot, um, kind of on the draw, like on the swallow, uh, the acidity's there a bit, but again, cause the, the last glass I had had a chance to oxidize for so long cause I had it open for like an hour and a half, um, really mellowed out, but like, that's, what's kind of nice about this bottle is like up front it was aggressive and now that i've let it open up and i poured like a another half glass or so uh while we were talking to kind of 
get that aggressiveness again. Like it has a lot of character in it mm-hmm. for ten bucks, which is nice. Yeah, well, you know, this is one of the things that I learned. Uh, I also I took you know I take I take wine classes quite a bit, as regular listeners will know. Is I took a wine class on wines of South America, and mm-hmm. one of the things that they talked about with both with both Argentina and Chile is right now they're still kind of discovering their price point because you can get fairly expensive South American wines that are not at all worth it. And you can also get mm-hmm. $10 bottles of South American wine that probably if they were, you know, if they happen to be grown in Napa or somewhere like that would be going for $60, $70. Yeah. And, and it's just because the producers, they they are not, you know, they've been they've been exporting now for a little while and they do have some recognition outside of their area, particularly Argentina mm-hmm. is very well recognized for Malbec. Um, but it's a, it's kind of like they're still sort of discovering their international market and sort of seeing what works, what price points work. So I've had a couple of Carmeniers that were twelve or thirteen dollars that I'd swear should go, should be going for forty bucks. And yeah, uh, but I've also had some that were twenty or thirty dollars that I was just like, I'm not sure why I bought this. Yeah, you know, this this is one of those wines where, you know, fifteen to twenty is the price point I would expect to see it at. Um, Really glad to get it at ten. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but you know that's kind of the the thing with me is also like I'm much more the discount wine guy. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. You, um, so like I'm my price point is naturally like a fifteen dollar price point. Um, not that I won't spend more on a bottle of wine, but like one of the things that frustrates me about you know spending forty dollars on a bottle of wine is my like there's a limit to what my palate can just do because of like just my sense of taste and smell. Right. So if you're not there to enjoy it with me or not having like my wife's not enjoying it with me as well, Mm -hmm. like 40 bucks on myself is kind of a bit much at this point, you know, in 10 years, hopefully not, but (laughs) for the time being, it's like, okay, 10, 10 bucks on a bottle of wine. Like I don't feel that bad. $20, you know, I haven't had to buy a wine in a long time because of the, um, la- not last bottle, um, but the Groupon wine thing that I got because I've still been like working on that. But, and, you know, I've got all the wines that we got in Texas, so, which I haven't opened yet uh, outside of the Tempranillo that we did last week. So, you know, like I've, I've got a lot of wine that I didn't spend a lot of money on. So, like, my price point is even further lower. Mm-hmm. It's like, Oh, I don't spend anything on wine when really I do. It's just like I get discount stuff. Now, I also got another wine um, while I was there, and I honestly don't remember what it was. I think I got a Tempranillo. Oh, okay. Um, because right now, if you live near a Kroger Marketplace in the summer, at least at the one I go to, they're always doing the wine clear out. So they have all the, like, in their clearance clearance section, they have a bunch of extra wines. So, it, whereas they normally have, like, a small clearance section in the wine place, but they've been, like, rotating, I guess, through a backstock or something, which has been great for me, because it's look through and see interesting stuff and see, you know, bottles that they don't normally have. Right, right. Or not, n- bottles I don't normally see, because I, I really only kind of look at that Spanish red and um, exotic red area, and then occasionally in the whites, because normally I'll go to Total Wine, but, I mean, I think it's been four and a half months since I've been in total wine. Hmm. Okay. Actually, no, it was, 
I think the last time I went to Total Wine, I bought cigars. Oh, interesting. And, and looked at looked at wine briefly. <laughs> Got cigars. I don't know. Like I, I go if if ever I'm over there because there's a TJ Maxx and a Marshalls over there, mm-hmm. or no TJ Maxx and Home Goods. And so if mm-hmm. if my wife ever wants to go over to TJ Maxx or Home Goods, like a lot of times I'll try to work in just going and looking. Yeah. And just because you know. I've got so much right now that I'm not really that interested in buying more. Well, I am interested, but I'm not going to. And um, I kind of just like browsing. Like I, I like to go through and look look around and scan things and see what you know what's what and just yeah. I'm just interested in it. Like you know, like oh, what's this? And you know, yeah. My biggest problem with uh, going to Total Wine is I know I'm missing the more exotic stuff that they have because they all have. Just a random shipment of exotic stuff. Oh, yeah. But I can only ever find, like, the basic whites, the basic reds. And, you know, like, talking to Jackson and talking to you and kind of knowing more about, like, South, you know, the West, you know, the different banks of uh, Bordeaux and, and those sort of things. Like, I know in the French section there's plenty of, like, different stuff yeah. that I could get. Right. But I'm still kind of on that point of, like, I really do like experiencing a specific grape and i'm still kind of stuck in that place where i'm like i don't know the grapes well enough to be like oh this is what this is happening with this blend right i understand that like even the most advanced winemakers can get that wrong and i'm not expecting to be like oh because they've included point you know five percent petite verdot this is happening Mm -hmm. like because you never know for sure but that's the the thing that for me, like I still like knowing, like oh, this is this specific grape varietal, because I like to imagine, like I'm gonna remember what that's like when I go to a bottle that has like fifty fifty blend or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, you know, fifty fifty blend Merlot Cab Sauv. I know what that's gonna be. Yeah. But. Yeah. Well, and the thing too about about it is, like I don't I don't think there's a problem with with getting a single grape, and then the other issue that's complicated that a lot of you know the listeners may have experienced this or they or they are curious about it a little bit is when you start getting into European wines, even with whites, a lot of times they're not called what the grape is. So they're still called the region. So like, I mean, if you're, if you're getting, you know, a white from, you know, what, what are the white grapes of champagne? The white grapes of champagne are um, going to be, I think uh, I'm going to totally draw the blank. Uh, Chardonnay is one. And, I want to say that Sauvignon Blanc is the other, but I could be totally wrong on that. But I think Chardonnay is one of them. And so, the, and same thing with like, I think um, like if you go down to uh, Burgundy, the the white, if you get a white Burgundy, it's Chardonnay, you know? Yeah, so like Pinot Noir, um, Pinot... Yeah, and, and same, same thing with... Chardonnay, Point Blanc, Gris, Petit Monsieur, Arbeline. Yeah. But same thing with Burgundy is if you're getting a Burgundy and it's red, it's it's most likely mostly Pinot Noir, if not all Pinot Noir. So, it, you know, that's one of those things that's kind of makes it a little bit more complicated. But at the same time, like if I if when I recommend somebody a like if they want a summer sipper, that's a white, you know, I think Sauvignon Blanc is a great summer sipper, but it's going to be a little grassier. It's going to have a lot of those citrus notes and stuff like that, but it's going to have a little bit of grassiness. And I find that interesting. It reminds me a lot of like a good cider. Um, mm-hmm. but part of my problem with whites in general is they all remind me of cider. And so I might as well <laughs> just have a cider. Uh, well, 
Exactly. You know, I've had a few that that are not like that. And and actually, since I've been taking those other classes, I I, my it's starting to get a little bit expanded a little bit more. The the high acidity in whites tends to, I wouldn't say turn me off, but it's just something about it where I'm just like, this is just not really what I want. Well, it's a different type of aggressiveness in whites, where to me, like a lot of the aggressiveness in a red is the tannins, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Um, yeah, you do occasionally have some that have high acidity or, yeah. you know, kind of some off. Well, I mean, it. even Pinot Noir, Pinot Noir is a highly acidic wine. It's, mm-hmm. it's just has other structure with it that I enjoy. Whereas a lot of whites that are highly acidic, they don't have those other things that I like. Well, I think it's also the sugar there. Cause it's yeah. like, well, I mean, it's, you know, there are dry white wines. It's just, well, no, yeah. there, there are, but that's the thing is like, you, you know, the ones I think you're. Talking about like yeah. you know Chardonnay and well even Chardonnay is dry. It's just that there it's the well it can be dry. It's just exactly it's, That's, yeah. That everybody keeps telling me Chardonnay is dry, and in my general experience, it's not. Yeah, but I also don't drink a lot of more exotic Chardonnays. I drink treat Chardonnays when I drink them, mm-hmm. and I found them to be more enjoyable. But like you know like Pinot Grigio, yeah. like it, you know you can get a sweet Pinot Grigio, but it, you're generally getting much more acidity and you know, right with Riesling because of the scale, depending on yeah. where you're getting the Riesling from. Like if you're getting a German Riesling, like you're going to definitely see a lot more of the scale mm-hmm. matter. Whereas like a lot of American Rieslings, it's kind of like, Oh, it's, you know, semi-sweet. And you're like, this is really acidic. Yeah. You're like, Oh, it's semi-sweet. And you're like, is this Gewurztraminer? Like, right. What, the f- what is this? Yeah. 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 And, and that's true. And you know, Riesling is one of the, one of the few when it's dry because they do, there's a there's a range of sweetness when mm-hmm. it comes to them. But um, mm-hmm. dry rieslings I, I enjoy, and and as you know, I like uh, Vignet and I like yeah. and I like Albarino. And Albarino it ten, does tend to be um, does tend to be a little bit sweeter, mm-hmm. but there's other characteristics of it that I think kind of make up for it and make it more enjoyable to me. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's kind of weird about like so like Gewurztraminer, yeah, like. One of the things I find really odd about that one is like, you know the the really dark porters and stuff that I like the the heavier alcohol ones. Mm-hmm. They they have that kind of like oil mm-hmm. like like mouth structure. Yeah, like some like a a less than chilled Gewurztraminer has that to it. Yeah, where you're like this is like this feels like it should be a really really dark beer, and it's like pea gold right <laughs> like, right you know it, it to be disgusting about it but like it's just like a different level so like i kind of get with like at least for me most reds have a mouthfeel and a structure that you would expect with red wine you know kind mm-hmm. of a generic structure to it some of the whites you're like wait a minute like this is not what i was expecting when you look at that glass you're like Oh, it's you know this should be light and crisp, and you're like this isn't crisp at all. Yeah, yeah, like, it's super sweet. And then you know you have like a Gewurztraminer, and you're like that looks like light beer, and thinking it'll be kind of light, and it's very oily almost. Right. Like I, I don't have a better description for it. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Well, I guess that's it for our our wines this week. You wanna yeah. you wanna get into our topic, or I mean, so let's, you, let's you and I do a. Well, let's do a mid-episode plug. Okay. So, um, you know, you can always follow us at tastinganarchy.com. You can follow us on Twitter, where Jacob uh, 
riles the state, promotes Trolderberg and our other ventures. Uh, we're Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. You can send us an email at tastinganarchy at gmail.com. Uh, we're on YouTube. We have a Reddit that is unrelated to us, but related to us. Uh, Reddit dot uh, com slash r slash Childerberg, um, where if you're interested in Childerberg, you want to know about Childerberg, you want to see anything about Childerberg, go there, send us some information, you know, reach out. We're both active on that. Uh, I think you and I have commented on every post that has been posted there. Um, yeah, at, at this point, I think that at this point it's just mostly you and me. <laughs> yeah, uh, at this point, yeah, probably that's true. Um, but if you're listening to this show and you haven't been to Childerberg.com uh, since June 5th, you know, first or so, or well, no, no since, since June, yeah, say June fifteenth, yeah, yeah, June fifteenth. We have a new shirt out. We are fundraising for the next Schulterberg. We are trying to make it cost neutral as possible uh, to those of us who contribute financially to it, i.e., Jacob. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we we have a really awesome shirt design, uh, courtesy of Jacob. Um, you know, so that's one of those ones where, like, hey, just. Uh, if you can, you're interested in a shirt, you're not able to make it, pick one up. If you have a friend who can't make it, pick them up one for them. They are a limited edition. Once we sell, uh, I think the magic number is 100. Yes, that's right. Uh, they are gone. Yeah, so I'm actually, I'm going to stop production at either 100 or uh, I think September 1st. And I will yeah, be switching so. to a different logo that will last until we start doing official attending Childeberg Dose shirts. Dosvidanya. Yeah, Dosvidanya. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and actually, on the on the I guess on the note of shirts, um, mm-hmm. there are also baby sizes and children. Oh, that's where I was going next. Oh, okay. And then yeah. one more thing, I happen to be wearing at this moment the Ringer shirt uh, of the new ones because I got it today and I put it on so that I could talk about it a little bit on the show. Mm-hmm. It is a really well fitting shirt. I like it a lot. Uh, I am 6'5 and about 200 pounds. It is, mm-hmm. it is a large what I'm wearing. The large is mm-hmm. large. It's it's a little bit big on me, and I'm a large person, so they they do yeah, run but, slightly large, but you know it it it, it it's very it also comfortable. Hasn't been washed and dried. That's true. It hasn't been washed and dried, so, and um, yeah. it is it's and it's very comfortable. I think the way that it is, but just you know when you if you've attended Childeberg or you see me on Twitter or you see me on Instagram. I am a big man, and mm-hmm. uh, but I'm a thin man as well. Yeah. So, the, so Jacob, Childerberg uh, wine band shirt, mm-hmm. tie-dye. I have an extra large, and I have a large. I pretty much fit large now comfortably. Yeah. And I don't really fit the large very comfortably. The extra large, I fit perfect. Right. What size are you in the uh, tie-dye? Also large, but it's a little baggy. Yeah, so yeah, so and and that say, and that's been pre-shrunk actually. So and that and that and those kind of ran small. Yeah. So this this makes me think this runs kind of true to. Well, if that's baggy, then this large is actually probably not that big. Yeah. <laughs> but so what I would say is, uh, order if you have any concerns, order one size up, and run it through a couple cycles in the dryer if it's too big. Yeah. If it's if it's perfect, you know, hey, don't put it in the dryer. I don't put my shirts in the dryer if I can avoid it, but that's just me because I'm weird. Um, it's also so, it's also yeah. very soft. Like I, I like it a lot. It's a nice it's a nice shirt. Yeah, so. I wasn't disappointed with the the first Schilderberg shirt. Yeah, 
they just weren't as soft upon arrival as I was hoping. Yeah, yeah. Well, but, I don't know if, you know, I wonder if that's from, I don't know if it's from, because you know, like when, I don't know if you've tie-dyed before. Oh, I, I, I understand yeah, the process. Yeah. I've not done it. Okay, yes. So yeah, I, I think it's the, I think it's kind of a combination of yeah, both. Yeah, right. Um, but anyway, these are the, really nice shirts. I, I like yeah, them a lot. They are. They're, they're available as in the, uh, the ringer shirts, like, uh, I don't know if you guys know what a ringer shirt is. How, how would you describe it, Mason? It's got like a, a different color ring on the on the collar and the sleeves. So if any of you remember the Vote for Pedro shirts from Napoleon Dynamite, where it's a white shirt with red writing, but it has a the, the collar and the cuff is a red, these are black mm-hmm. with white uh, main body. So uh, very 80s kind of yeah. camp counselor look. I, I think they look really good. The logo is particularly good. Um, so, yeah, definitely definitely a really nice shirt. Yep. Um, but if you're not cool with the ringer style, we also just have plain white t-shirts okay. with, with the logo. Um, yeah, so, and there is one, so in the kit, in the toddler and baby size, it's 24 month and under. Yeah. There is a black shirt, right? That's right, and it's the only one. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I, I've been th- I've been thinking about it because people commented on it. They were like, "Hey, mm-hmm. can I get uh, can I get a different color like the toddler one?" You commented on it, and a couple people on Twitter also. I've been thinking about maybe running a couple of other colors, but still limiting it to a hundred shirts total because now those those like what I would say is at this point, yeah, the the bridge shirt. The one that's going to run after this, mm-hmm. that will have a different color. If we're going to do another, co- if that will lend itself to another color palette, palette, yeah, then that one because at this point, so for those people who are going to be attending the full Childerberg, uh Dose event, it's four days. So if you attended Childerberg one, you have a wine van shirt. Yeah, you have a uh, investigate Childerberg because that's the title of the current shirt. Mm-hmm. You'll have the. Um, bridge shirt and you could have a childerberg dose shirt so there's four shirts you could have right. for the event that's right so i think keeping it kind of in that range um because for those who don't understand these cost money <laughs> that's right so um if it would be different if somebody was saying like look i'm gonna order 10 black variants and put the money up for them but otherwise like you know oh we have a different color available it's like okay well were you willing to buy the first one if i didn't yeah oh think about it well then you're not gonna buy a black one. right right well you know let's use some of our uh former bosses logic where it's like yeah it wouldn't have mattered otherwise right (laughs) you know what i mean like so um that's just kind of covering that um so I believe we owe some shout-outs to some people. Um, as always, we shout-out the Friends Against Government podcast, the FAGCast, Bird and or, well, not Bird, or, uh, Bird and Carl. Yeah. Uh, they are our co-Childerbergians in their own ways. Um, we will hopefully be having a appearance by a fleeting bird at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, he's trying some homemade kombucha or something like that, depending on who you're talking to um and we all have that so we'll be able to talk about it together uh car has been on the podcast and uh, we enjoyed his wine mix so and you know we got to meet car in person for those who hadn't i have and uh you see him not frequently yeah I mean, yeah, f- yeah fairly pretty much yeah. anyone else in the liberty movement yeah i mean we, we um, see each other maybe once a month mm-hmm. yeah 
so then there's like uh sounds like liberty nikki p and his wife lizzie uh if you want your dose of music and very wide ranging and very interesting you know set of music um you know, I check those guys out. Uh, we've both have been on the show. They haven't been on our show necessarily, but I don't think either of them particularly drink. So that's a little harder to kind of set up. Then there's always Mr. Sue, who we uh, have obviously had on our show and uh, is a Childerberg attendee himself. And then Peaceful Treason, those guys, a wonderful shout out to both of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, I look like a guy who would be good at cornhole, which I think is hilarious. Uh, <laughs> uh you know they have a a very interesting um you know it's kind of like a libertarian news show but like a deep dive on like an issue yeah it's kind of the way i would describe it and they're both you know great guys in person wonderful dog uh and just a lot of fun um so yeah those are our kind of all right oh uh anarchy inc the one that we were on with Anarcho yeah, Coffee Guy. Anar- yeah, Anarchy. Anar- Anarcho Inc. Anarcho Inc., um, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that, like, I can't believe I nearly left that out. Um, just a fantastic show and company. So, you know, I don't know if the it's still good, but uh, if you do, do Tasting 10 on Anarcho uh, Coffee, you can enjoy a 10% discount possibly still. Uh, I don't know how long that will run, but if it's still up and operational. Yeah get in on that because that'll definitely help them out and you know let them know that you were listening to us and then uh let's see i'm sure we're missing people but let's let's move on well, i mean like dino files oh dino yeah yeah let's let's yeah. let's let's continue uh, though because we we've said you we've, me and i'm you <laughs> yeah i mentioned that to him and he thought it was pretty funny but you know yeah. we've been talking about plugs for five minutes so let's let's move on yeah. to more i guess wine wine and Personal. This thing is, you know, you and I talked about this a little bit before. Is I, I didn't prepare. I've been super busy the last last week or so, and have been preparing a motorcycle for. Well, yeah, I started working motorcycling. Well, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. So, yeah. Um, so one of the one of the reasons I got the motorcycle was to have kind of an interesting way of of driving around Texas and seeing Texas, and and a good excuse to just sort of drive places. Uh, cause it's, you know, it's, it, for people who have motorcycles, I'm sure they know this. I had, I had one, well, I had a scooter briefly when I was, mm-hmm. uh, for about a year, maybe a little more than a year when I was younger and I, and I did like riding it. The thing I didn't like riding about it was that it was so slow on any main road mm-hmm. and it took forever to get up to speed. And it was just, it was, it was just an uncomfortable way to ride with other people who are going at normal speeds. So, you know, I was talking to Victoria about it a little bit after Childeberg and she was like, well, get it. And you know, you know how I am. So I was like, "Oh, right, your wife tells you to do something, you do it." Well, she yeah. Well, basically, yeah. She she tells me to do something, and like I see that. Oh, that's a green light, and then two weeks later, I've got a motorcycle. And yes. So, but the, one of the reasons was to see Texas, and it's a good way for me to get around and go to the wineries and just you know shake hands, introduce myself, maybe get some interviews. Um, I will probably not be doing wine tastings on the motorcycle because it'll make me too nervous, but. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that the areas are really nice, and I would have no problem going down and just stopping at the wineries, walking around, talking to people, seeing things, maybe buying a couple of bottles, and then moving on to the next one, just to try to get me around. You know, for the listeners who listen for a long time, they know that I'm trying to kind of move my way up in the ranks of being in the wine world, so through certification and through just shaking hands, and... I thought this would be kind of a fun and memorable way to get around. It's a very interesting bike. It's a it's a 1984 Honda 
uh, VF 700 and they're a little unusual. They're a little bit older. And for people who know bikes, they, they would recognize it as being kind of an unusual bike, but it's also not an expensive bike. So it's not, it's not like people would be like, Oh my gosh, he's got money or anything. You know, it's just, it's, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a cheap bike. It's, a, it's also three years older than either. Of us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's an old, it's an old bike. So, but it runs pretty well and I've been doing work on it and stuff. So that was, that's been occupying a lot of my time. But one of the things that you and I were talking about before the show was just the amount of governmental red tape for me to be able to ride a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that I'm sure that there was this much when I got my driver's license. I just don't recall. I think the process is a lot smoother with a car because it's like so. I don't know about you, yeah. but like I I delayed getting my license, like. Just because I was lazy about it and I was terrified of driving. Oh, okay. Um, so I delayed getting my license for a while. But, you know, basically I went, I took driver's ed and driver's ed, like, basically covered all the prerequisites to just go in and take my test. Yeah. Now getting my permit and all that stuff took a while. And then, you know, you're supposed to log all these hours and all that nonsense. But I don't think anybody ever checked any of that crap. Yeah. But, yeah, like, I, from what I understand, like, because I had a friend when I went to NC State. Um, he bought a motorcycle kind of like on a whim yeah. and bought, you know, I think it was a 30 year old bike at the time too. Um, and this was 10 plus years ago. And, you know, he kind of like, you know, he got his license, but like he had to go out someplace and it was like in some parking lot, you know, it was like, it was just a different process and it wasn't as well documented. Yeah. Cause you know, like, you know, 10 50, 20 years ago, like everybody got a license, yeah. you know, that could drive right. basically. So like, you know, there was all these many market alternatives to make getting a license easier. Right. Whereas, you know, what is it like one, 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 you know, like, let's just call it half of 1% of people get a motorcycle license. Yeah. I mean, even around here, which is a, is apparently a, according to the internet, a fairly easy state to ride a motorcycle in. I, mm-hmm. I don't actually see that many. Well, I saw a lot. I saw a lot. I see a lot parked here all the time. Well, I saw a lot. Mm-hmm. I thought on the road from Dallas to the Lake Buchanan and Lake Buchanan back. But I think what I was noticing was the fact that there were so many people riding without helmets. That's true. Cause so, and that yeah, bothered yeah, me the, the, the helmet laws here, I guess, are that uh, if you're over 21, you don't have to wear a helmet, which... I don't want to get into the whole argument about this because I've gotten into this with the bicycle argument and stuff with a lot. Is mm-hmm. I, there, there's there's arguments for both sides. To me, it seems insane to ride a bicycle or a motorcycle without a helmet when you're riding with cars. And I agree to a point because I never intend to use a bicycle as a means of conveyance mm-hmm. where I want to get somewhere. Yeah, and, like, and I guess that's different. I like, you know, I used to ride it to work once in a while. Yeah. I like the idea of getting a bicycle and riding around my neighborhood and driving to other people's neighborhood with the bicycles and just seeing a neighborhood that way. Right. I don't want to go on to a, a, you know, a street. And that's one of the things that like frustrates my wife and I about you getting a motorcycle is we don't think you are irresponsible. We think everybody with cars are. <laughs> well, and, that's just, yeah, and, that's true. I mean, that's, then that's definitely a risk. I mean, that's one of those things is that, yeah, I mean, you do have to, so one of the things you and I talked about is one of the, one of the very first step to getting a license in Texas is you have to take this long online course. 
I think I told you it was five or six hours. I think it's like three. I, I don't know exactly how long it is, but it's 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 all timed. You can't skip ahead and just do the quizzes and all that sort of stuff, which I I tend to be better at just like reading a book and then doing the quiz. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is like you're watching all of these videos where they're like they're telling you stuff like what's the problem with this picture? And it's like a guy like riding backward on his motorcycle, picking his nose or something like that. And you're like, there's lots of everything. things. Yeah. Everything's wrong with this. Like he's an idiot, <laughs> but like the, you know, it's just one of those things where it, it's just, it's, you're taking it and you're kind of like, Ugh, like this is annoying, but it's, and it's clearly to me, the government doing some crony shit because there's only one of these courses you can take. It's provided by a private company. Mm-hmm. And it's the only one that's certified, to my knowledge. And it may be that maybe the company that I'm getting, I'm doing my behind the handlebars tests and stuff like that with, because uh, you know I haven't driven in such a long time on a bike that I, I'm I'm a little bit nervous about it. And I also mm-hmm. also I had a automatic before. This is a manual, so I just want a little bit mm-hmm. of extra help and just to get used to it and and a place where I can ride for a couple of hours safely without anybody messing with me, and and just remember how to do it. That's the that's the thing that I've always wondered, and not to derail the conversation, yeah. but like one of the things that's always stopped me from trying to ride a motorcycle mm-hmm. is I I'm, I'm not good. Like I, you know, we had a friend who tried to teach me um, to drive a stick shift, yeah, and I couldn't pull it off. Really? And yeah, I was just well, he you know he had a Ford Focus with like a weird clutch, so like I don't know how much of that is him just not being a good teacher, me not feeling it, you know, like. I was a bad student learning to drive a car. I don't particularly think I'm a bad driver. I recognize that I'm not as good a driver as I used to think I was. But like, you know, I like I recognize that about myself. I was not a good student learning to drive a car. Mm. So to me, like like a manual car always seemed like one of those things where like maybe because I was always worried about damaging it. Okay. As opposed to like, you know, put it in drive. And then let go of the brake, and then if you need to stop, put on the brake. Right. To me, like, you know, I understand, like, you could shift into neutral pretty much any time, put on the brake, but that's just an extra step between me and stopping. Okay. So one of the things I've always wondered about motorcycles is, like, are there actually automatic motorcycles? And then you say that, and I'm like, well, no crap. Yeah. (laughs) I should have known. Yeah, yeah. there there are. uh, I guess, like, so the course that I'm taking, they teach you on a manual, because most, I guess, Mm -hmm. are manuals. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. You know, my all of my first cars. I didn't have an automatic car until I think, I think the Explorer. I think the Explorer, yeah, which was the car yeah. I had before the one I have now. And so, mm-hmm. like my first. Well, and the thing too is, I drove without a license for a long time when I was a kid, and my parents, yeah. my parents didn't really care. They were like, "Well, you're not going that far. It's fine, and you're not going on the freeway." Um, and I and I also had a. I bought a, my first car when I was fourteen for two hundred fifty mm-hmm. two hundred fifty dollars, and they were like, "Well." It's it's a little Honda Civic. We call it the zombie. And I had to open the sunroof and stick my head out in order to fit. It was so such a tiny car. And they were just like, yeah, we don't really care. Like as long as you're just kind of like in the neighborhoods and stuff like that mm-hmm. in, in around our area. And so I would drive it to work and I would come, you know, I, w- I worked two, three or four blocks away, not very far. And yeah. so I just drive it around to, you know, you know where we used to have the libertarian meetings before it got moved to Pembroke. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah. I, I worked in that neighborhood, in that shopping center. So... I would just drive it over there when the weather was bad and I would walk when the weather was good or I'd ride my bike if the weather was good and I had it for a while until they made me give it to my sister and she didn't know how to drive a stick 
And so she ruined mm-hmm. the clutch. And so my $250 car was gone. And paperweight. Yeah, yeah. So we had to, we gave it, but I think, I think that's like the first car I gave to Eccleston Services. And then I gave two other cars to Eccleston Services. <laughs> well, you know, it's really funny about that. Yeah. Is a clutch is not a hard thing to replace in a Honda Civic. It's not, but it was a $250 car and I wanted a truck. So I, yeah, so I, so and, then I bought a truck for $400. <laughs> well, and, and that's the thing that like kind of, you know, to, so there's several points here. Yeah. One, when you told me you were getting a motorcycle, I was like, I thought this mofo wanted a truck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, hey, what's the most impractical thing if you want a motor, uh, you want a truck? <laughs> that's a true. Motorcycle. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Okay. Logical. And I was like, I bet his wife thinks he'd look hot on a motorcycle. And that's the only reason he's getting that, a motorcycle. That, that is, that that's also part second. of it. That's also part of it. That was, <laughs> yeah, that was my second response. And I was like, I was like, all right, the motorcycles that he'll actually fit on. He'll look ridiculous because he's not a biker. Yeah. And those are like kind of the only motorcycles that you'd fit on. Then, so, and, you know, this is one of those things, like, for people who don't understand, like, one, inflation. Two, like, the idea after cash for clunkers that there's a $400 car. Yeah. And it, like, you know, got a $250 car, and that car could reasonably have kept going. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For quite a while. What you know? Yes, there could have been the transmission fell out the next week. You know, you, you know when you bought a two hundred fifty dollars car back in the early two thousands, you knew you were buying a two hundred fifty dollars car. Yeah, if you bought a two hundred fifty dollars car today, it wouldn't move. Right. And this is less than twenty years ago. Yeah, you could have bought a two hundred fifty dollars car that would have gotten you to and from work. And this is the thing that, like, you know, here people are always arguing about, like, oh, we need the uh, the light rail. Yeah. We need to lose money on this. Like, well, if the government hadn't destroyed all those cars and made all these other bizarre standards that, you know, inter- messed up the market, you could have a, you know, a $10,000 brand new car that in three years would have depreciated to the fact that you could sell it for less than a thousand bucks. Yeah. Well, you know, so sort, and, sort of on that point, like one of the, you know, because I, I, I look on Craigslist a lot and, you know, I've talked about mm-hmm. this a little bit off air as well. I look on Craigslist a lot and I look on the Facebook marketplace just to see what's available. Mm-hmm. And there's been multiple times where I've almost gone out and bought like a 1983 Ford Ranger mm-hmm. because I think I can do most of the work on them. And actually having this motorcycle reminded me of this, how much I like to do work on things. Yeah. If you're going to buy a car from the eighties, get a diesel. Okay. That's a good, that's not a bad suggestion. Yeah. Cause like most of the, most of the diesel stuff you can fix, Yeah, but most of the eighties electronics in a, a, a gas engine one I think are going to be just more trouble than they're worth. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, the other the other thing. So this is Jacob nostalgia. When I was a kid, my dad had a car that we called the Great Pumpkin. Mm-hmm. It was a it was a 1967 Chevy. Uh, man, what was their pickup truck back then called? Uh, I can't remember what it was, but it was it was a it was a Chevy pickup side. It was a it had the uh, step side. Mm. Man, it was a cool the sideboard. Yeah, yeah, it was a freaking sweet truck, and he ended up getting rid of it and buying a VW Golf because it was. Now, imagine this in in 1988, probably 1988. No, no, no. I I was old enough to remember the Great Pumpkin, so it must have been like 90, 1990 or 1991. So you'd be four. So yeah, and I, I remember when I was four. I remember because when I remember moving into uh, my grandma's house and. Uh, helping move all that stuff. Like I remember that air, that age. And I actually, I remember living in Roseville and we moved out of Roseville when I was three. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like I have very distinct memories of it. Actually, I remember playing on the top of the VW golf 
in Roseville, so we must have got it in 1990. Um, hmm. Because I remember it was new, and my mom came out and was like, "Why are you playing on the new car?" But it was it was an, <laughs> it was an old VW Golf. It was like an '84 or something like that. Hmm. And uh, that car lasts forever. It was sweet. But my parents got it because the Chevy was not a kid's. Uh, it was not a family friendly vehicle. But mm-hmm. a VW Golf somehow was. <laughs> well, it was a coupe. Yeah, I could see. Well, I could see a VW Golf having seatbelts. That's true. In the back seat. Yeah, yeah, and and the, and the Chevy had no back seat, so it'll, it. We I, mm-hmm. and I do. I recall riding in it, and when we would go to church, I would sit on my mom's lap. Janie would sit in the middle, and my dad would drive. So we were all crammed in the Chevy, and just driving. You know, driving along. Like I have weird like. When I talk about this, to me, this sounds like so unsafe, but it sort of so shows you – I mean it probably is unsafe, but it's sort of the sinister nature of the government is they've kind of drilled it into us that you're only safe if you're in these like behemoths of machine that are probably heavier than that Chevy was. And uh, But what is it that Eric Peters always talks about where he's like for every – that they require these fuel standards, but then they also make your car like two tons heavier than it used to be. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, and, and, and that's – you know, and that's what I would say is like you know, your the the Chevy probably had a a column shift, mm-hmm. so it's not like your sister was in the way of the shifter, right? Because your dad's pro- you know it's probably a column shift. Yeah, I think it was so, I think it was three on the tree. So yeah, yeah so, so it's, three on the tree, yeah. and then I bet you know I'm betting what was the church was probably less than five miles away. Oh, I'm sure. Actually, I think we yeah. I think it was the one in Roseville. I think we walked to it most of the time. So yeah. if it was bad weather, we would all pile in the truck. Yeah, and that's the thing is like, yes, it's probably, you know, like I will say like just inherently it's not good to have your your kid in the, you know, your kid on the uh your kid on the lap and whatnot. Yeah. But, you know, while this is a super fascinating conversation, I actually have to cut the episode short okay. because something's going on with my daughter. Okay. So uh everybody, stay free. Uh Jake, if you wanna roll out some other audio to it yeah to you know cl- close it out yeah um, i'm gonna talk to yeah. we'll go from there. yep i'm gonna talk a little bit about this article and then we'll go so uh right. i'll see you later man have a good night see you man you too bye all right everybody so mason had to had to leave real quick because his daughter's crying in the background there and he's a good dad so he's taking care of that um what I wanted to talk about and this is wine related is a recent supreme court decision and I'm kind of of two minds of this in this decision, and that is because I don't really think the federal government should be telling people what to do and what not to do. But at the same time, I want to be able to buy wine across state borders. So this case we've actually talked about earlier in the series in in our show, um, and it's Tennessee Wine and Spirits Retailer Association versus Thomas. And basically, the gist of the story is that Tennessee has some kind of odd requirements that there, Tennessee has some odd requirements that like if you want to have a wine retail location, you have to live in the state for a certain amount of time. And so this has been challenged, uh, and the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the challengers. And so what does this mean? It means that possibly you'll be able to buy wine across state borders. So if you guys are not... If you guys are not subscribers to Wine for Normal People, she does offer some very interesting insight into a lot of these things. She's going to have um, Thomas Wark from the National Association of Wine Retailers on to make sure that people understand what this reading means. But the gist of it is that um, 
and I think I kind of gave you guys the gist already, but the SCOTUS recognizes that the Commerce Clause of the Constitution applies to alcohol as well, and that means that you're allowed to sell alcohol across state borders and that you can't have residency requirements for selling alcohol. Those are silly. Now, on the one hand, Tennessee, this is very, this is obviously cronyism in, in Tennessee. They made these laws because they're requiring people to to be in the state because they want to limit the number of retailers, which means that the existing retailers can make more money. It's kind of, it's just kind of simple economics. But on the other hand, some states may want to live in a different way, and the federal government really shouldn't impose their views on those states. So, for example, you know, this is a very common libertarian argument is abortion rights. Now, New York has very, very, very liberal abortion rights, and Alabama recently severely restricted abortion rights. Now, culturally speaking, Alabama and New York are completely different places. Why should they be under the same law? Now, abortion is an incredibly contentious subject. We don't really like bringing up things like that on the show because it's, first of all, it's not really very con- very productive to have those arguments. But uh, Mason and I have a opinion on that that is v- very nuanced and unusual. And, you know, if you want to look up what we believe in, it's the Walter Block uh, evictionism theory. Um, and I think it's logically sound. But, you know, not not all libertarians agree with that. Not all people agree with that. So why can't Alabama be live a certain way and New York live a different way? And on that same note, why can't uh, Tennessee require people to live in the state to sell alcohol? And New York maybe allows people to, or actually New Jersey is a good example of this. New Jersey allows a lot of sales across borders, and it, it's not a problem. Texas is a little bit more restrictive, but not as restrictive as other places. So to me, this is kind of like, it's a little bit of them overstepping their bounds, but at the same time, like I, I like to buy wine and stuff like that, and I would like it to be able to be shipped where I want to get it. So I'm hoping this does open up Texas a little bit because there are some restrictions for Texas. But on the other hand, I don't know if uh, growth of federal power is a good thing. So I guess I'll leave it at that. Uh, once again, go ahead and check us out on Tasting Anarchy on Twitter, tastinganarchy at gmail.com if you want to message us. I still have some koozies from Childerberg One left, so if you do a review on your favorite podcatcher and email me a screenshot of that review, I will send you a koozie. I sent out the first uh, group of those, uh, I guess yesterday or the day before. I can't remember which. I think it was yesterday. So uh, those who left reviews, thank you very much, and you should be receiving them soon. Um, I guess until next time, stay free, everybody.